This is AI Murmurings, a podcast that explores intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab, a creative research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. This podcast was produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. Today I'm speaking with artist and composer Jem Feiner, who's joining the podcast from London. Hey, Jem. Welcome. Hello there. So this podcast, AI Murmurings, and the larger program in which it's embedded called Art Intelligence, is really an invitation for contemporary artists, curators, and cultural theorists to bring their practices and understandings into some kind of more meaningful contact with the field of artificial intelligence. And my hope for the conversation that we're about to have is that it can perhaps help bring focus to some of the subtler threads from the art world that might influence developments in AI. Anyway, before we start the conversation, I'd like to get into a little bit about your background. I understand you studied computer science, and after that you went on to work in film and photography and installation, and as well as, of course, to have quite a prolific career in music and composition. Amidst that work, At the end of the last century, you were commissioned by the arts organization Art Angel to compose a 1,000-year-long musical composition called Long Player. And you and I met a couple of years back in the context of that project, which obviously has a lot of resonance with the work I do at Slow Research Lab. But for listeners who don't know about it, could you briefly describe what Long Player is and how does it work? its simplest long player is um, best described as a 1,000 year long piece of music. It's um, cyclical in that it um, arrives back at its beginning after every thousand years um, and within any one cycle it never repeats itself. It's an algorithmic composition that is, I didn't sit down obviously and write it all out, I devised a system that would compose it you know with with this very strict duration and it was composed very importantly in a way which takes into account that we haven't a clue what's going to happen in the future in terms of anything let alone technology and energy sources so it's it's adaptable to any technology it can be played by people on simple instruments which are called singing bowls which are type of bell popular in eastern cultures and equally it can be played by a computer or anything else one can imagine or even not imagine but really um, in a sense that's just um, it's not the whole story because the reason for composing such a thing had nothing to do with music whatsoever. Right. You've, you've said that the project grew out of a lifelong curiosity about time, in fact. And specifically, you traced, I know you've traced it back to certain childhood encounters you had with elements like starlight and stones that exist 
in very slow time frames, time frames that are almost ungraspable, or I think you've even said unknowable to humans. Yeah. I think it's a very human thing to be fascinated by time and the way it works. I certainly don't feel unique in that respect, or in any really. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, as long as I can remember, I was fascinated by time, and you know, I was. I think my parents were, in a way, you know, they would take me to places and give me experiences that they were trying in their own way to give me a sense of deep history and future. Yes, yeah, so looking at stars through telescopes, going to, you know, megalithic, neolithic sites, so on. But actually, I mean, the one profound thing I remember was, you know, just being told to stand in and wait but for a minute by, by my mother. And, and because I couldn't tell the time, I had no way of measuring it. It was a seemingly endless, endless wait in a what was sort of like a Lynchian kind of corner of a corridor of our house. <laughs> just sort of like horrible, dark, shadowy, depressing, dingy space. And she and, said, just just wait a minute, Jim. Yeah, I mean, it's a well-tried well tactic of the parent. You know, I've employed it myself. <laughs> Um, but, you know, this idea of time before clocks, the time before we can tell the time according to a clock, and actually thinking back to a time when human beings didn't even have clocks, it's those sort of flows of time that really interest me. And that for many years I wanted to, you know, find a way of working with, of making work about or, or, or with. And Long Player was the eventual outcome of that. Right, and, right. And the catalyst, I should say, really, I suppose, was and why there's this specific duration was the in the mid '90s, the impending millennium, and the seeming lack of any engagement with long continues of time, and rather just thinking about how to celebrate something and spend a lot of taxpayers' money on, on nothing. So. Uh, I, I wanted. I thought, well, hang on, maybe this is what I can do. I can somehow make sense of a thousand years by making a thousand years, which right. eventually I realised. Well, the only thing I really know how to do, and that's time-based, possibly on those scales, is make a piece of music. Yeah, you've said from the beginning that Long Player found form as a music composition, but you think of it above all as a thousand-year-long process. And um, I, I just wonder, we were talking about this sort of the unknowable dimensions of time or even this thousand years of Long Player potentially being, you know, ungraspable or unknowable to uh, humans or a single human lifespan. One of the themes, uh, one of the important themes in Slow Research Lab's work is not knowing. And it's also one of the first major topics we've set for the Art Intelligence Project. So I'm wondering what you would say the role of not knowing is in that 1,000-year-long process. I think not knowing is a, is a very useful way of thinking about what might happen. Um, and I think, I think often, too often, 
we or certainly the you know certainly the powers that control our lives political and corporations and so on they don't really think they think in terms of what to them is knowable um mm. very short futures and you know very destructive cycles as a result i think not knowing you know forces one to question what might happen and mm. um start planning in ways that mitigate bad things happening so that's one thing of not knowing mystery is always more in, enticing than you know you don't want to be told the plot before you go and see a film for example which is a kind of analogy i suppose for, for what's going to happen it's yeah and an al a good analogy for embracing uncertainty especially in the times we live in but just in general for asking open-ended questions so I want to talk about the Holland Festival. Uh, one of the reasons we're having this conversation today is because the site-specific installation of Long Player that we created together for the Holland Festival yeah. in Amsterdam a couple of years ago has yes. been revived as part of this year's festival. And yeah. in fact, it's happening as we speak. Yes. No, that's, so, that's a wonderful thing. A, a, a lovely surprise and, and interesting in that I believe it's the only actual physical sort of work in the festival this year. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, little did we know a couple of years ago when we designed it as a one person at a time experience that that would perfectly suit the times of uh, COVID-19 as it does. Yeah. So yeah. indeed, the rest of the festival has gone entirely online. And this is the one single physical or live experience that people can yeah. have. The installation, I'm just going to explain for those who are listening and haven't experienced it. The installation in Amsterdam is located in the tower of the Lloyd Hotel, which is a wonderful old structure in the east of the city. And one of the main reasons I had suggested this location was for its historical significance. Beginning in 1921, the Lloyd Hotel was the last stop on land for many emigrants from Europe before they boarded boats to the Americas. So it's, in a way, I see it as sort of a site of transition from one reality to another, or and certainly a sort of intergenerational inflection point, which I think fits well with long player. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a very sort of loaded space, really, in its history in that way. That's right, that's right. Yeah, there's much more history beyond what beyond just the immigrant 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 experience. I encourage people to go and look at the Lloyd Hotel's history. They've got a very good record of that and description of that on their website. I, of course, maybe one of the most special features of the tower of the Lloyd Hotel is that it has a 360 degree view. Yes. And it extends out, it's all glass and it extends out across the land and across, you know, across the city and across the water. Yeah. And I've always loved it up there because it, it's from that vantage point. One can literally imagine the city of Amsterdam coming into being over cent several centuries. You see all these different layers of the city infrastructure, and you also see the waterways and can imagine how the city was really built in time and perhaps even imagine it into the future. Yes. It is very similar in that respect to... Um What's sort of Long Player's home in London, which is a lighthouse on the River Thames. Mm. Uh, and again, you have, you know, you have this elemental 
landscape of sky and 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 water which have, have always been there and will be a lot longer than the buildings and and the buildings go to you know they are torn down and new ones built up at an incredible rate you know like right the development that's gone around gone on and continues to around long players lighthouse in the last 20 years is extraordinary and i think similarly around the lloyd hotel is a it's a whole sort of new docklands well what what used to be docks is now sort of much more sort of residential and sort of recreational destination isn't it i'm sure that's right that's right thing like that 20 years ago or so it's very true yeah, so it, it, you know these these vantage points in these uh, you know these maritime in the case of london ex maritime cities um they really sort of they chime well with long player um i think mm. resonate well you know this you, you have all these layers of time um and it's almost you can imagine sort of seeing it like a time lapse yeah and it's so it's from that place and that vantage point that we've invited people to climb up and it's a as you've said a one person at a time experience so we're inviting people to come in and have an intimate encounter of 30 minutes per their time slots of 30 minutes and so one person at a time is having an intimate encounter with this very small fragment of 1000 years certainly puts the duration of human life in perspective and even more so those 30 minutes but you yes. know it's interesting in in the lighthouse in london how you know some people literally it's like they're ticking off a destination they shoot up here up into the lantern room where the speakers are and they're down within 30 seconds wow. uh, okay we've done that and you know, and then you have other people who you literally will spend that sort of whole day there. Right. Beautiful. Well, that's actually a very good transition to the next one or one of the next things I hope to talk with you about. And, you know, it's that it's, it's this idea of whether that listening is a sort of a, a luxury in a way. Is, is it a privilege? I mean, if you look at the current state of humanity and the planet, it's precarious at best, right? And yes. As we have this conversation in June 2020, people are in the streets around the world to protest structural injustices and systemic violence that have existed for centuries. Yes. And, you know, and the global pandemic we're in the midst of has only amplified those inequalities. Yes. So I'm wondering, Jem, you know, how do you square that with an individual, like in Amsterdam, most likely an individual who's enjoyed some degree of privilege, high up in a tower reflecting on time well i mean you know on the one hand you know it it feels kind of shameful in a way so so yeah i mean when you put it like that it on the one hand you have to say well you know well obviously like it's a great position of great privilege and one should recognize that you know another way of looking at it is that energy should be sort of put somewhere else um that's more kind of socially responsible but given that it's there and i am pleased it's there i hope that i hope that you know every you know everyone that goes there's an individual and we can't predict how they're going to react or what's going to happen and you know in their heads you know possibly some people 
they're going to walk in and they're going to walk out and nothing's going to have changed. But you can only hope that maybe spending half an hour in reflection anywhere by yourself with very fundamental stimulus of water and sky and sort of tapping into a long durational continuum, maybe that somehow there's a, a, a sort of a medit- meditative process goes with that. Yes. Well, my question was not to point a finger at long player in any way. It was more actually to beg the question of, you know, of accessibility. I think also to to work like this, and I, I certainly think that in today's circumstances, uh, which, as I said, are ongoing circumstances for so many communities, there's a lot of fatigue, and I think uh, that you know the spaciousness. What I love about the project is the the is the spaciousness of time that it invites people to enter into into as you say a meditative state into a a state of reflection if only for thirty minutes to kind of step out of that hyper accelerated and or you know uh, productive landscape that we call contemporary western society and and just stepped in step into a totally different time frame and state of mind and hopefully state of being in one's own body and being in reflection and in relationship with much longer stretches of time with other generations and so on. But I, th- I do think it's important to, as we talk about contemporary art and as we talk about emerging technologies like AI, to talk about privilege and who's privileged in certain spaces and not and whose voices are present in certain spaces and not. Well, no, I mean, just one thing to say about Long Player really is that it's never been mine or anyone connected with looking after Long Player's intention that it has an ideology at all. You know, it's always been something open that we've just tried to make accessible to people as freely and widely as possible for them to respond to as they wish. The associate artist of this year's Holland Festival is Bill T. Jones, who is a phenomenal New York-based African-American choreographer, director, writer, dancer. And he has said about his own creative process, and he's also talked about this in terms of his artistic guidance of the festival this year. He has said, art happens when something is pushed against. And I, I just wonder... What what you would say, actually, in thinking back on your process in creating Long Player, what does it push against? Well, it, it pushes against kind of duration in many ways, for a start. I mean, if you're making a piece of music, like, regarded by many as crazy to write something that's longer than anyone can ever hear, regarded as crazy to write anything longer than you can stick on a CD or a record. So, to me, that's interesting. You know, I mean, I'm not the first person to write very long durational bits of music but you know it to me that's an in you know i like the idea of the perversity of of saying right i'm going to write something so long but um yeah so I, I like the idea in terms of writing music of sort of pushing against accepted ideas of duration but also more importantly about pushing against sort of the sort of norm in how far ahead people think because you know like all my life, 
the year 2000 was ahead. And when I was born in the 50s, it was like this sci-fi sort of singularity, sort of nothing, right, nothing right. ever seemed to, but the closer you got, nothing ever happened beyond it. It was still the year 2000. And there's, you know, that, you know, how far ahead people look these days is before, I, I'm to, I must sort of qualify that, I suppose, before COVID-19. And there was thinking as always, was always very, in terms of a few years, it's always in terms of electoral cycles, for example. Right. Um, and so what long players always pushed against is these sort of short-term ways of planning for the future. Because, well, there's lots of different ways long player could be kept going, but, you know, it could be automated in ways that it needs no human sort of help ever again. But that that's not of any interest to me i i only want it to play if right. um if other people want it to play and so yeah. what that does is it it puts it the responsibility on human beings to keep it going and if people want to take that on then um it means they have to start collaborating with a community of you know listeners and custodians that brings me back to some questions about relating to artificial intelligence. You know, and you have talked about your you of about the long-term survival strategies of long player and this idea of community yeah. stewardship that people have to care enough about it in order to keep it going. You know, I wonder a lot of people think about and even worry about AI getting smarter than or even surpassing human intelligence and you know, whether or not that happens, there's no doubt that AI will replace many tasks that humans currently do. Uh, that's been the case with human technologies for millennia. You were talking earlier about clocks, and people used to look at the sun and determine the time of day, and then they invented sundials and eventually many other kinds of clocks, and, and long player is yet another kind of clock in a way. And so I wonder you know, how you would feel if AI were programmed to make sure that long player kept playing no matter what does that kind of defeat the purpose or well to me it does but i know to other people it doesn't so you know for example long players looked after by the long player trust which is um simply a you know a group of people who sort of collectively take the responsibility for looking after it and you know as years go by one people sort of stand down and new people come in so nothing unusual in that but you know obviously every, every all different people members of this trust have different attitudes and ideas as to how to look after long player and as to any, everything else in, in life and uh, some of them some of them are quite keen advocates of you know looking at ways all possible ways of keeping something going they have um AI strategies for how you could keep long player going. You know, I, I wouldn't discount anything, but personally, my you know my interest in the human side of it, I find the artificial intelligence both really fascinating, you know, in a sort of geeky way, in a sci-fi way, and also quite worrying. Um, mm. You know, in, in you know, I mean, obviously, you know, like you've alluded to, you know, the way technologies if they can do something more economically than a human then the human is 
displaced. And that's not always a good thing at all, obviously. As for AI sort of taking over the world, I don't know about that. I think, I think most people who are really experts on AI are, don't actually think that that's going to happen in the way that a lot of people fear. Well, but, one would hope people were intelligent enough to, uh, you know, to, to stop it happening. But, you know, the, I mean, if, if you think in a kind of sci-fi way, then, you know, it might already be happening because we wouldn't know. You know, it's like a sort of alien thing, like those in the past, Previous centuries, in sort of, you know, think people thinking about aliens, they'd think about them in very sort of human terms. Whereas uh, now, I think, you know, you know that film Arrival. Yes. Yes. You know, so I mean, that was an amazing sort of vision of what an alien could be. Right. Similarly, what this this sort of idea of computers that uh, you know an intelligence emerges in and an autonomy and a culture, I suppose, we wouldn't necessarily have an idea what that was. Right. Uh, They could be doing it already. Well, that's where, again, I think that art can be sort of instrumental in, you know, as Bill T. Jones said, in in pushing pushing back, you know, those are exactly the kind of dominant thought patterns that are, that among so much more, that, that there's a lot to push against these days is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. There's more and more to push against. And, um, you know, and I would include in that the dominant systems and the voices or subjectivities through which technologies like AI emerge and yeah. take hold. So the more that part of the premise of this, the Art Intelligence Project and um, this AI murmurings is to really explore and, and try to, again, sort of coax out, tease out other threads, other voices, other threads, other ways of of sort of expansive, more expanded ways of thinking through those systems and, again, pushing back against them and, you know, and perhaps integrating them. There's no reason to say that AI won't become part of our community somehow, um, if you want to call it that. Bill T. Jones said a theme for the Holland Festival. The festival's actually unfolding, but the theme he set is in pursuit of the we. Right. So it's this idea of moving from an individualist or an I perspective yeah. to, uh, to, li- to a deeper sense and kind of experience of collectivity and community. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that can only be a good thing. And, and there's an irony in that, that, um, you know, the, the long player in, in its incarnation in the festival is something that can only be experienced um, by people by themselves in the sort of singular right. But one would hope that through that they can make a connection with the, you know, the we, the community of, of listeners that, you know, people listening in other places at the same time in the world and listening through time. That right. It's, it's perhaps important to clarify for our listeners because people maybe don't realize that Long Player is playing now. It's been playing since, you know, the last stroke of 1999 and will continue playing until the very end of December of 2999. And it's as a continuous piece of music, and it can be listened to, and that there's an OS app and other ways to listen to it. It can be listened to by anyone anywhere in the world. So a person in Bangkok or Kampala or New York or Oslo or wherever can tune in and listen to exactly the same fragment at the same time. So there is a sort of distributed 
we in that, right? And then on the other hand, as you've put forward many times, it's sort of it's it's about connecting, engaging, and connecting to a community of listeners across centuries. So even when you stand up there alone in the Tower of the Lloyd Hotel, it's an opportunity to reflect on one's own life, but also to perhaps feel that connection with others who've come before and others who will follow, bridging humanity in a way across long stretches of time. So can we then, and might we then imagine that artificial intelligence will be one of the one of many, you know, human and non-human members of that community that ensures long player survival, that's listening. Could AI listen to long player? And Well, I, I guess if it was trained to, clever enough to train itself. But I mean, I don't know why it would, actually, but um, it could, of course. Just yesterday, I was on a webinar with, um, with an artist named Stephanie Dinkins, who is um, exploring AI through, uh, really from, a, from an African-American perspective, thinking yeah. about she's developing chatbots that speak like her family members. And she said the first chatbot she ever built, she fed Toni Morrison. She just read Toni right. Morrison to it over and over. You know, so, t- so I'm just wondering whether listening to, as listening to Toni Morrison, can listening to long player as AI will certainly be listening to other other forms of music and much shorter forms of music, can it potentially learn something from this longer temporal perspective uh, of the piece? Well, I'm sure it'd be very easy for um, sort of machine learning agent or program or whatever to um, learn to compose in the style of long player. I don't think that would be very difficult for it. You know, if, if if it can learn to play Go and be the world champion, composing long player should be absolutely simple. I'm sure it could do such a thing. But I just sort of, you know, I've, I've always wondered about what the point of um, setting machine learning or AI, AIs and so on, um, in learning to compose in the style of anything, what the point is, because... For me, the uh, the interesting thing in any setting up systems is what emerges from them that you actually never imagined, and creating something new that you've never heard of before that actually, you know, blows your mind in some way. Funnily enough, with long player, when I started working on how to compose it, I started also, you know, reading a lot of books and listening to a lot of music and stuff, and really sort of educating myself in the whole sort of history of modern classical music and experimental composition and so on and uh, on one trip to the bookshop i bought um, a book about artificial intelligence because i thought okay yeah well maybe maybe artificial intelligence would be helpful in working out a way how to compose long player to my surprise when i got home um i thought i sort of got the book out of the bag and it didn't say artificial it wasn't called artificial intelligence at all it's called artificial life in fact, mm-hmm. right on the bookshelf, still in front of me, Stephen Levy it's written by. Um, and that book kind of, that was amazing because I had no idea about this whole kind of discipline which deals, you know, with, with setting up very simple systems and seeing what emerges from them. 
the, the simplest way of looking at it. So um, rather than a sort of complicated top-down um, system where you sort of create something that sort of can analyze, um, you know, style and so on, and then recreate in that style or mutations of. So, you know, from the, from the beginning of long players, whole sort of process of creating it was based on emergence, you know, playing around with systems that you had no idea what would come out of them, you know, building on very simple, very simple ideas and, and tinkering with them until sort of the right complexity came mm. out. I think the way you've described it, I hope I didn't, I didn't imply that I thought AI would be composing new long players into the future. It was more, the question was more whether AI, whether machines listening to long player and experiencing another tempo, you know, and another temp and another sense of temporality that the, the duration of the piece in relation to the duration of other music, um, mm. sort of like, like introducing Toni Morrison's voice <laughs> to, to machine learning as opposed to the, you know, the mostly white, you know, Western yeah. often male yeah, yeah. dominant voices. So in that same way that it, AI could, could, uh, you know, could easily come to the conclusion that all, that all muse, that all the pace of, contemporary life is all one thing or that the pace of the pacing of music or the duration of music is all one thing but then long player interrupts that that knowledge you know or that learning well it's an interesting thing to speculate yeah i mean i guess if there was artificial intelligences which were um had the ability to sort of just cast around and listen to anything they came across and um you know, and they came across long player. It might confound, um, the, might confound them. But I, I don't know. I, I have a feeling that you know, music, music and language are kind of different in a way. Um, you, you, it's yeah. Well, I I don't know. It's a difficult thing to speculate about, yeah. really. Yeah. But I mean, I, I I can totally understand how you know a machine can learn to speak in the style of you know, a particular culture, pick up idioms and so on. Well, and uh, the point the, the point I was making also is that machines have always learned from one kind of dominant, from the, you know, machines always have been programmed, you know, from one sort of dominant ideology, well, one dominant culture, and, uh, or one or a few dominant cultures. But, um, but again, the... And again, the reason for this podcast, the the idea of these murmur of of the, these other possibilities, these expanded expanded forms of of living or ways of living or thinking or speaking, which are which are present, and perhaps they're just murmuring under the surface, you know, kind of buzzing and humming under the surface of the the dominant or the predominant or the loudest uh, yeah. culture. And yet they are there and creating a platform where we can introduce and especially through art and artists and that pushing against that it, that art represents and the alternative perspectives and, and practices that art can introduce are an important reason why this art intelligence project 
was set up. And I think that pro I personally think that projects like long players and perspectives like yours as an artist can really can feed into that system in really interested and perhaps unexpected ways. So like the artificial life example you gave that it's there were there will be emergent properties in AI because of the infusion of art and artists. So, Jem, I'd like to close out our conversation by talking about care. Yeah. And which, like not knowing, is an important theme for my own creative platform, Slow Research Lab. And yeah. we have today and many times in the past talked together about ways that long player facilitates, you know, expanded perspectives and experiences not only where time and temporality are concerned, but also where community is concerned. Yes. Right? I mean, it's impetus to collectivity and the creation of a community that's perhaps distributed around the world or a community of listeners that are connected through time across generations, across centuries, as you've said. And the prerequisite for all of those, in my opinion, is care. And you have talked about the caretakers of long player, the long player trust. Um, yeah. We've talked about a hopefully, hopefully, uh, a community of stewardship. You know, a community who will steward this project, uh, long player, into the future. Yeah. And and help help it survive. And so yeah. I feel and I wonder whether you would agree that care is one of the things that AI can learn from an art form like long player. It would be nice to think that it could because, well, I mean, you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want um, artificial intelligence to sort of turn against humans and try and, uh, you know, mess with their world. But I, I don't know. I think I th my understanding of the way these things work is that you know what you feed them influences what they behave like so i think it's maybe more to do with people who are you know have an interest in creating um artificial intelligent forms that have um a caring nature or right. caring or sort of responsibility to do caring things so yeah, or, I think or that it ultimately it comes down. It's not the machines; it's the people that create the machines and set the parameters of what machines learn and give them the certain inputs as to what they learn. I don't think you know. I mean, for me, you know, the word care and sort of computer programs don't really sort of uh, you know. It's not a, a, a verbal association I've made, but I think it's a valid thing to think about. So, yeah, I think people have to, it comes down to the way things are trained. And, and yeah, if we're training their behaviors, then, yeah, which forms of care or which forms of affection are they being exposed to and which new, form, new, new affections might we be exposing them to? And, and could AI then be programmed to not to care for us, but to nudge us, you know, as humans? 
toward patterns and practices of caring more deeply for one another and caring for one another in new ways? Yeah, I really don't know. But I, I think emotion, I don't know how you, emotion tallies with computation. For me, you know, you can, you can program a computer to create, let's say, a piece of music that has great emotion in it. It's down to the setting of the parameters again by the person that sets it up. You know, um, it's not down to the actual machine itself. The machine's just doing what it does, just playing out a system. And if in that system there is some emotional care, then that will hopefully come out. Well, there's a lot of there is research into teaching or work done on teaching empathy to AI and so on. But again, yeah. it's it is it is as you say all programmed. So it depends what form what what empathy looks like or feels like to the engineer who's actually who's actually uh, coding that you know uh, yeah. creating that algorithm right or coding that. So. Okay. I mean, I have to say, I, I really am no sort of expert. It's important, you know, to say that. Like, I don't want anyone to think that I'm mouthing off, thinking that I'm a great expert. But I think I'm not an expert at all. But what I do think I'm more of an expert in is the opposite approaches to AI. Like I said before, you know, yeah. the, you know. So yeah, I have I have a lot of experience of dealing with systems and technology and programming computers but i come at it from a very different angle i'm actually interested in using a platform like this to loop back into the kind of wells of knowledge and pathways of inquiry that artists have already established you know yeah. and that are and are continuing to establish irrespective of the technology and yeah. but also looking for intersections of those things and seeing how machine learning engineers and artificial intelligences might absorb some of that way of looking at the world yeah. and again perhaps uh, contribute to our our human interrelating support our human interrelating in new and positive ways Jem thank you so much for today it was a pleasure to learn more about Longplayer and listen to the live stream, please go to longplayer.org. This has been AI Murmurings, brought to you by the Australian Institute for Machine Learning the Sia Furler Institute, and Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. You can follow the Art Intelligence Project at artintelligence.ai. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow Instagram and Twitter. It's at AI underscore murmurings. 
I'd like to thank Anton Vanen Hengel, Director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, Tom Haidu, Director of the Sia Furler Institute, and Sebastian Tomczyk from the University of Adelaide. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab.